Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Hello, and welcome to the Brain People Podcast. I'm Dr. Daniel Vinas. And I'm Amanda Anguish. I'm Jonathan Edens. And I'm Dr. Katie Elson. And together, we are the Brain People, real practicing mental health professionals, co-workers, actually. We want to welcome back our regular listeners and welcome any first-time listeners as well. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with practical tools for defeating depression and anxiety. We have now released, drumroll please, 10 episodes of the Brain People Podcast. Yay! <laughs> so we wanted to do something really special. We wanted to hear from you, our listeners, and field some questions that you have submitted. It could be about something you heard on the show or something else entirely, like something going on in your life. To submit a question for our next Q&A episode, you can go to our website at thebrainpeoplepodcast.com or call and leave a voicemail at 530-388-5111. Again, that is 530-388-5111. So let's jump right into our first question. And for all of you listeners, this is going to be really exciting because you have the opportunity to not just hear one expert's opinion on these questions, but four. And so let's get, first of all, to Keitha's question. So Keitha asks, I experience a lot of fear and anxiety. How can I leave my house to go out in public when I'm so afraid? It's a good question, Keitha. So brain people... What do you think? How can Keitha get out of her house, even with fear and anxiety? Well, I think already there's a part of the answer in the question. I think you recognize that you need to get out. And mm -hmm. for our approach with therapy, it's called exposure therapy, recognizing that the fear that you have, what continues that fear to perpetuate and keeps it alive is by avoiding the very thing that can be beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. So one step would be getting out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting because if we're not even aware and willing to look at what is actually going on, then we can't overcome it. And I agree that the first step to actually overcoming fear is to look it straight in the face. Yeah. And it's also helpful to recognize, too, that fear is usually associated with some kind of trigger things that we normally do, we have something bad happen, quote unquote, bad happen with that. And so then that's why we fear it. But it's also important to realize as many times as we might feel fear in that situation, how many times are we not reinforcing that fear by getting out and meeting people who are actually kind, loving, considerate, and that sort of thing. And when we focus on that, that's what keeps us from reinforcing the fear too. So with that exposure, celebrate those moments when you meet the people that don't help you be fearful again. 
It's a good point because that actually reinforces the more positive mm-hmm. aspect rather than just focusing on the negative. Because the more we focus on what makes us fearful, guess what? That's going to increase mm-hmm. the fear and cause even more problems. And it, we can start to even make a mountain out of a molehill. And I just want to add to that quickly, Amanda, when you mentioned the trigger is that trigger also leads to thoughts, mm-hmm. thoughts about what might happen again. So sometimes that's based off of past experiences, but also those thoughts are often exaggerated or distorted, tweaked in some ways that's not actually matching reality. So yeah. looking at your thoughts and asking, is it truthful? Right? Mm-hmm. If I'm saying, oh, I'm going to die if I go and I do something, there's a risk, but am I overestimating that risk mm-hmm. and then changing that? There was a there was a study that took a number of people that had been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and I don't remember the exact uh, patient population size, but it was hundreds of individuals, and they had them make predictions about the future that they were most anxious about, and then they waited, I think it was about a year or something like that, came back, and then had them... Uh, basically admit, you know, how often these things actually happened. And so in, I think it was 93% of the cases, those things didn't actually happen. Mm -hmm. And then in another 6%, those things happened, but they were far easier overcome than what the people actually predicted. And so it was really only in 1% um, of this particular study where patients had to deal with the thing that they were afraid of and all of them got through it. And then even when they had to deal with it, they were better equipped than they thought they Mm -hmm. would be. And that's typically what I've seen over and over again, not only in my patients' lives, but also even in my own life too. If I waste my time and energy focusing on the what ifs and trying to solve problems that don't even exist, you know, then it actually becomes a major energy drain in my life. On the other hand, if I just take it one step at a time, somehow I have the ability to deal with whatever comes up for that day. And, you know, one thing that I've recognized too is that a lot of that is related to the circumstances going on in my life in that moment. In other words, a lot of times I actually have resources that I'm maybe not thinking about when I'm thinking about what I'm afraid of um, available to me when I'm actually facing the fear. Mm -hmm. And that can include human resources. In other words, oftentimes like when we are fearful about something, we forget like, hey, maybe I could call a friend or maybe even a therapist could kind of help come alongside me and help me face this fear. Because once we face fears and do it successfully, even if it's with somebody and we're kind of using that as a crutch, that then makes it easier in the future to repeat the same. Mm -hmm. But when we're trying to do it all by ourselves, And then, you know, we maybe fail. That can, of course, be somewhat feel defeating and and, and almost re-traumatizing. And so we do want to set the stage for success. And I think that's that's a really important element. Mm -hmm. Good thoughts. Any other uh, thoughts on how to experience uh, or how to overcome that fear and anxiety when we're trying to leave the house if we have those feelings of panic? One thing that I might add, and even though I'm not a therapist, I know that this is probably something that you guys would employ with exposure therapy, uh, but you know, working on taking maybe some of the most extreme fears and then finding some things that are maybe a lower severity that you would anticipate causing you that much anxiety, and then kind of working at the lower end and checking off things one by one and gaining some confidence so that you can ultimately tackle the thing that you're most afraid of. I really so going to Target that. at 3 a.m. Well, they're not open at 3 a.m., are they? The drugstore at 3 a.m. 
instead of going during high peak traffic hours? Yeah. Okay. I don't want to get up at 3 a.m. Maybe she will. <laughs> yeah. And I was just sitting here thinking, hmm, we want to be careful what kind of uh, sleep advice we're giving our listeners here, too, I think Amanda. That's another question on here that we're going to talk about, right? Yeah, yes. Yes. One? We are going to get to that. Awesome. But I just wanted to mention one thing that Jonathan's alluding to, which is really it's a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, mm-hmm. is the ideal approach using that what we call exposure response prevention graded exposure so you don't start with the most difficult situation and you're not only addressing the behaviors but like katie mentioned earlier you're also working on the the thoughts and you're Mm -hmm. thinking about is this truthful or is this helpful and again don't be afraid to get help in the process whether it's a trusted friend family member or a therapist all right well let's get on to the next question so billy asks since having covid A relative of mine has been chronically unmotivated. This lack of motivation was not apparent before getting COVID. There are no physical symptoms that can be found. There are no reasons in their life that would warrant this. Things are going fine in all aspects of their life. But the reoccurring theme is a lack of motivation. Is there a diagnosis or explanation for being this way? I don't think I read that the same way the first time. Was it that they had COVID or because of COVID, the pandemic? So basically, they, this person's rel- Billy's relative had COVID. Oh, okay. And then afterwards, they became chronically. But unmotivated. they don't have any symptoms of right. it anymore. I think that's, um, you know, sometimes we think we're invincible, and then there's something that happens in life that reminds you that oh, maybe I do have some limitations. And I think that's important to recognize that when we have these either traumatic or just life-changing moments, and this is a life-changing moment because look at what we've been in the middle of. I think a lot of people are forgetting how long we've been going through this and how much it can affect your psyche and your just your emotional well-being. We're pushing through things that we don't even realize what we're doing on a daily basis with the masks and the you know, different mandates and things are changing all the time and stuff too. And so when you realize like, oh, I'm not invincible anymore, that can, you know, that can cause some depression. It can, you know, settle you down a bit and maybe what your expectations were for life. So the first thing I think is just recognizing that this is a big thing that we're going through and everybody's going through it together, but some people are experiencing different you know, circumstances related to it. Not everybody's, you know, getting COVID, not everybody's recovering the same way and, you know, dealing with family members and that sort of thing. And it just, these things have the, have the opportunity to bring growth out of them. But if we're looking at it a different way, then it might also settle us and cause us to question things that we might have thought differently before. Yeah. You know, I, I really think there's a lot to be said for when you face a potentially life-threatening illness, mm-hmm. that it really can cause a, a shift in the way that you perceive the, the the world and your life. Any other thoughts from mm-hmm. 
you other brain people. Yeah, I might add, uh, you know, particularly because we come, you know, Dr. Barnes and I come at this a little bit more from like a neurochemical, neurotransmitter approach. Mm -hmm. You know, when I hear lack of motivation, my brain always goes to dopamine. And so dopamine, for those that are unaware, you know, most people have heard of it, but it's primarily involved in motivation and reward. And so there are many things in life that can influence your dopamine uh, stores and uh, and how much is really active. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll talk about medications and supplements for enhancing those things. And, and that's something obviously you need to talk to your own uh, doctor about. Uh, but there are also things that you might be doing in your life that can like habits that you might be engaged with that can also have a significant uh, impact and impairment on your dopamine mm -hmm. stores. So if you're engaging in really uh, highly stimulating, really instant gratification type rewards. So, you know, maybe in this example, uh, the individual when they got COVID it sort of uh, stopped their momentum and then all of a sudden they're having difficulty getting that back and while in that state they developed a lot of bad habits and those bad habits are keeping them from being motivated at things that they used to uh, not be motivated on so it, it would take a little bit more of a deep dive into looking at how they're spending their day to day what is you know taking their attention uh, and how we can sort of redirect that mm -hmm. absolutely and i i totally resonate you know with what you're saying about the whole neurochemical uh, thought process. Cause yeah, as, as a, uh, prescriber and kind of looking at it more from a medical model, if you will, I'm also thinking about, okay, what, what is actually happening with COVID? In other words, what's happening during the illness that could actually affect the brain, mm -hmm. the overall brain function. Cause certainly <clears throat> what we're looking at here, when, when we look at low motivation, that is a symptom of depression. It doesn't, we don't know if this individual is truly depressed or not, but I'm guessing there probably are mm -hmm. some depressive symptoms going on um, along with the low motivation. And so what I'm sitting here thinking is obviously when you get sick with COVID, you actually get a lot of inflammation going mm -hmm. on in your, in your body. And, you know, it really can affect the uh, blood flow to the nerve cells, the nourishment of the nerve cells. And, and in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, there's more and more being talked about what we call long haulers mm -hmm. uh, syndrome or long haulers symptoms. In other words, people are getting not only physical, but cognitive and mental health symptoms that are occurring over the course of weeks and months following COVID. And so I, I do think there's probably an element of um, chronic inflammation, if you will, that is continuing to go on. And certainly I agree with what, what Jonathan, what you're saying there as far as looking at ways to boost dopamine. But I also would add that trying to find ways to actually decrease inflammation and mm -hmm. optimize blood flow to the brain, to the nerve cells would really help to facilitate uh, healing. And so, uh, you know, we, we would be talking about things like nutrition, we would definitely be very wanting to be very careful with any pro-inflammatory, avoiding pro-inflammatory foods, especially any kind of refined sugar, carbohydrates, definitely mm -hmm. want to minimize that. Uh, also really trying to get pro-inflammatory um, or anti-inflammatory anti <laughs> foods yeah. and, and, and even potentially supplements like maybe curcumin and um, other supplements that might be able to kind of bring down some uh, inflammation as well as uh, really getting 
And I say mild to moderate exercise because you want to be careful after COVID not to overexert, especially because there is, you know, the possibility of um, you, that you might even have a little bit of cardiac myopathy. And so you, you definitely don't want to overexert yourself right after recovering from COVID, but getting a little bit of, at the very least, walking to get that circulation going. Hydrotherapy is a great way. In other words, hot and cold uh, treatments. And there's others that we don't have time to get into. But that that would be, I think, a basic approach along with using you know, cognitive therapy. So you really want to use a holistic approach to try to recover. Yeah. And I just thought of something else, too, that I'm glad I didn't forget because I think this is so important, is that um, when people have COVID, if especially if they wind up in the hospital, there's a lot of isolation involved, too. And so mm. not not just because of COVID, but even before COVID, loneliness was a huge issue in our country and even in the world. In the UK, they they um, instated a new position, director of loneliness in their parliament. And so that was pre-COVID. And now we have, you know, if you go into the hospital, you're isolated from your family, even from a lot of the medical staff and stuff, and you're pretty much on your own. And so that can cause that sort of change in, you know, mentality too of realizing like, I'm alone in all of this. I'm not just suffering from the illness, but I'm suffering from the loneliness that comes with the whole pandemic. So that's just something else to keep in mind, too. And, you know, as often as we can going through all of this, we should be connecting with others and stuff. And so that person who submitted the question, you know, connect with their cousin. And I think it was a cousin and and continue to keep that person you know, keep tabs on them and stuff that would Absolutely. really help with the loneliness if that's a factor. Absolutely. And I just heard from Dr. Katie on Sunday night that they also have a minister of loneliness in Japan as well. Isn't oh, that right? He's catching Katie? On. So, we don't have one here. Yeah. Yet. What's up, America? <laughs> oh, We're no. lagging behind here. We need to. <laughs> Anybody want to run? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, Amanda, you're already uh, rooting for your a position there. All right. Well, let's uh, get on to the next question. And this is from Sandra. And Sandra asks, how can I boost my EQ? And EQ stands for emotional intelligence. And maybe we should start by defining EQ. Could one of you define EQ? And then we'll talk about how we can boost EQ. I would be happy to. This is something that I'm really fond of. Um, so emotional intelligence has five parts. The first part is recognizing your emotions. The second part is managing your emotion, emotions, and we do that by managing our behaviors and our thoughts. Um, the third aspect is recognizing other people's emotions. So we don't live in isolation most of the time. We have to recognize that we're not an island unto ourselves. There are other people here. And then the fourth aspect of that is managing our relationships. We don't manage people we're not controlling them. We're managing our relationships with them. And because of those four factors, the, we can then set and maintain or accomplish our goals. I thought you said there was five. Those were five. The, the fifth the one was, was goals. setting goals oh, okay. and maintaining them. <laughs> My emotional okay. intelligence was the zoning out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now that we've defined that um, and I'm uh, now up to speed, and why don't we <laughs> talk about how we can actually improve that? I, I can name one. Uh, uh -huh. Paying attention, I think, is a good idea. <laughs> okay. Listen, active listening. <laughs> that actually is one. <laughs> I would say if you notice that 
a lot of them have to do with emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence. And one small tip is to make emotions your friends. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they struggle with emotional regulation or managing and recognizing in other people because a lot of cultures tell you emotions are bad. Mm -hmm. So if you have that mentality in the first place, you can't even listen to your emotions. You can't even identify them. And then you can't manage them. So start viewing emotions as your friends. And now I like to break that down in two ways that emotions can help communicate to you and then motivate you to do something. Mm -hmm. So if I listen, if they're my friends, they're saying, okay, anxiety, it's communicating to me danger. Okay. And now what is that motivating me to do to deal with that danger in some way? And so listening and making emotions your friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like that because I think typically we think of emotions as kind of being in two buckets like one is good emotions and the other bucket is bad emotions mm -hmm. but what i hear you saying is that even feelings like anxiety and anger and some of these other emotions that we typically think of as quote unquote bad emotions are not necessarily bad it's more recognizing them and then dealing with them appropriately mm -hmm. rather than allowing them to kind of control us or make us do things that are inappropriate. Yeah. I like to I like to whittle all those five down to two actually. And the first one is when I recognize my emotions and I manage them, that's called intrapersonal boundaries. Mm -hmm. I'm having good healthy boundaries with myself. And then the second part is you know, recognizing other people's emotions and managing my relationships with them, that's interpersonal boundaries. So how my relationship with them. And if I have good personal boundaries and good other boundaries, then I'm going to be able to set my goals and not fall through, you know, on them when they, when I make them. So just yeah. recognizing boundaries. That That's a really nice way of conceptualizing it and realizing that we, we need to kind of have internal limits and, and rules, if you will, of how we cope with self ourselves. Self-control. <laughs> I know I didn't want to say it because people don't like that word. <laughs> we don't like discipline. <laughs> we don't like rules. <laughs> and and then we need to have also a healthy control, if you will, or way of dealing with our relationships mm -hmm. with others. Mm -hmm. So how can we actually, because it sounds great and it's wonderful in principle, but how can we actually develop these skills or tools to really foster that healthy control and internal self-control and then also relational management. So Amanda mentioned thoughts and behaviors as kind of the two that really impact emotions. And so when you mentioned, Dr. Minus, about the two buckets and bad or good emotions, typically it's not the emotions themselves, it's the thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I like to give the example, the analogy of if you have a fire, which are the emotions and the fire is burning, if you allow it to express them, they naturally go, the fire goes down. But if you feel the fire, that those are the thoughts. Mm -hmm. So if I think, okay, there's a bear and I'm anxious, the bear goes away, fire goes down. But if I'm like, the bear's just around the corner, I just know the bear's coming back. It's coming back to get mm -hmm. me. Those are the thoughts. And so practical skills is also saying, let me look at my thoughts that are feeding my emotions. If I'm angry at a loved one. The anger is good to tell me that some injustice was done. But if I'm thinking untruthful thoughts, then I need to change. They the just thoughts. hate me and they're out to get me. <laughs> exactly. Rather than maybe they're not out to get me. Maybe I haven't set a boundary yet with them. And mm -hmm. that's why the relationship is struggling at this time. Which is then a behavior, right? Yes. Setting behavior mm -hmm. uh, boundaries are behaviors. And mm. it, and I love what you said because it really comes down to our 
even our boundaries have more to do with our thoughts on the boundaries than the actual boundaries that we're setting. Because oftentimes we make boundaries, but then we don't actually follow through with them. We don't make, there are no consequences because we feel bad. I must have done something wrong because that person's not responding the way that I wanted to, wanted them to, rather than, hey, maybe this is a good indication that, you know, this person isn't the best person for me or that they need some more time to practice this. So it's interesting because even though we're talking about emotional intelligence, we're actually really highlighting that thoughts and mm-hmm. emotions are closely connected. And yeah. we need to be very careful to be aware of not only our emotions, but also our thoughts, which then mm-hmm. lead to emotions or can at the very least add fuel to the, to the fire of emotions or potentially decrease the the fire, if you will, mm-hmm. if we're actually thinking about thoughts or, or having thoughts that um, help things to kind of simmer down. Yeah. Our emotions are merely a, like a sign to tell us where to go. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I need to go back to my thoughts and figure out what I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts uh, before we go on to our next question on emotional intelligence? Okay. (laughs) Jonathan's nodding no (laughs) or shaking no. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on. So this one is, uh, I think, a very important question, actually, because it has to do with family members that are struggling with mental health. And and it's an anonymous uh, contributor. It says, what should I do with my spouse who is depressed? What should I do with my spouse who is depressed? What do we do when family members are struggling with mental health issues? How can we handle that? I would say the first thing is don't try to be their mental health professional. Uh, Leave that to those that have, you know, uh, uh, spent a significant amount of time studying and working with people in this particular position Mm -hmm. Uh, in part, because sometimes when you do that, then there can, there can also form this, this degree of resentment between uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the spouse and yourself. Uh, They're not looking for you to fix them. And so uh, that would be the first step. The other thing that I would say is just, uh, you know, encourage them as much as you can support them, come alongside them uh, rather than constantly trying to, uh, you know, if you, if you're, if you're impressing upon them that you're just there to fix them, then they may take that uh, very defensively and it may just create more resentment, more of a wall and really damage the relationship. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that because one of the important things to realize is that of course, we all want to help our family members and especially a spouse that can be one of the most difficult things, but we have to be careful not to overstep our mm-hmm. role, so to speak, our boundaries. Otherwise, it can actually do more damage than good. Yeah. And you can, I think what you said is really good. I want to make a distinction though. You can come alongside them, but don't join them. Sometimes what mm. happens is, is because that person is depressed, then you start giving up and you start falling apart. And maybe you start taking on the same poor coping skills that they're doing. Maybe you're watching too much TV with them or you're eating poorly because, well, if they're not going to get better, what choice do I have? And you wind up joining them too. One of the best things that you can do is continue to live your life the best way you can so that they have a mirror that's reflecting back to them, wait, this is what looks good and this is what makes you healthy Maybe I can do some of that too. And you may never even have to say anything about it. They are watching. But if you 
join them in it, if you go and become just like them, then now you have two people that are suffering. So don't think that the best way to help them is to be, um, you know, empathetic so much so that you're actually in it with them. I, I think that's one of the things I I see people do. They think like, oh, if, you know, I'm feeling what they're feeling and I've got to go there too with them so they know that I'm there. You can join alongside them, but keep the pace up for them so that they're not falling back too far. So if, if someone's in, in quicksand and yes. sinking, you don't want to jump in the quicksand with no, them. <laughs> you want to actually stay on the firm ground and mm-hmm. do what you can to extend a rope or whatever, mm-hmm. but you don't want to jump in there with them and, and drown yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're definitely talking about things you want to be careful not to do. And, and, and Amanda, I think you, you mentioned some things that we could start doing, but mm-hmm. any other thoughts of things that we actually can do if we have a close family member that is struggling with depression? So I think this applies if you have a family member, friend, anyone who struggles with anything really is to ask them how they would like to be supported. Mm-hmm. So we often jump into fix-it mode, as Jonathan was saying, and what people most want is you. Mm-hmm. They want you. They want your presence. And the best way to communicate that is to ask them, how is it that you would like to be supported? Like, I notice that you're feeling this way. What can I do to help? If you're feeling down, You know, ask your spouse, how do you want to be supported? Now, one thing that I will mention specifically for depression, especially for a spouse, is if there's ever a time when there's more concern, for example, suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. that's where you might say, yes, I respect your boundaries, but at the same time, this supersedes your boundaries. So sometimes people say, no, I want to be left alone. I want to be left alone. I even know parents who will take the door off of their Mm -hmm. child's room. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you might say, oh, no, you have to respect them. But there comes a point where it's so concerning that that might go beyond um, the level of quote unquote respect. It's a different type of respect and love and care. Yeah. And there's a certain kind of thinking that comes with depression that's not to be um, uh, it's not to be respected because sometimes depression lies to us. And so we have to be aware that, hey, I'm not going to let that person just tell me that because they might be under the impression that depression is telling them the truth. I I made a brief comment earlier about if they're struggling with depression, trying to get them in to see a mental health professional and sort of the implicit maybe assumption behind that was that it, that might be an easy task. Uh, I recognize that in a lot of uh, in a lot of cases, particularly men, are not necessarily interested in getting help for these types of things. Mm-hmm. So one one thing one tip that I've found for you know for spouses that have been uh, or family members or friends or whatnot that have had individuals suffering with mental health disorders that are resistant to seeking professional treatment is to frame it in a way that's going to be more motivating for them. So for example, you know a lot of a lot of uh, uh, these individuals might be more inclined to say work on their sleep, right, or um, work on s- their panic attacks or something mm-hmm. along those lines, um, and that gets them in the door, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can start kind of addressing maybe these things that in their mind are maybe a little bit more stigmatized uh, when they've actually gotten their foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also just just one. That's how I get people in the door. Just come to the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of times it's the the image and the the thoughts that they have about therapy or about seeing a provider. Just come. You notice that we're friendly people. 
right? We smile, <laughs> we don't bite. And then it's like, wow, I actually have this space that I could talk to someone that they're not trying to fix me per se. And mm-hmm. um, they actually enjoy. I've, I don't think I've ever had a client that was like, oh, no, this is horrible. I'm not coming back. Um, <laughs> and so just one, tell your spouse, you know, just do me the favor, come once. And then, you know, you can see, you can make a decision then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I like that, you know, just trying to get somebody in the, in the door to, to see and realize it's not maybe as bad as, as what I thought. And, you know, one, one thing that I think is important when we're dealing with, especially with depression, like Amanda mentioned is that, you know, it really can be crippling for people. So whatever we can do, uh, to, to, and, and, and it sounds manipulative, but we want to use the leverage that we have in relationships uh, mm-hmm. to to make sure we're not enabling. In other yes. words, we don't want to make it easy for somebody just to stay, mm-hmm. you know, in bed all day and 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 just take care of them because mm-hmm. that's their choice. And so I'm just going to support them. We want to actually do whatever we can to be kind, but also to be firm and say, well, you know what, if if, if it's child, for example, it's. It's like, okay, there's certain expectations that um, everyone in this house has as, as part of a family member here. And we understand that if someone has a disability or health issue, that we're not going to always have those that level of expectations. But if you do have a health issue, then at the very least, we expect you to be getting help for that so mm-hmm. that you can get better and make progress. We cannot allow you to live here and just not do anything because Mm -hmm. that would actually be unkind from, from our side. So I think having those boundaries and having those discussions, even though it can be difficult and sometimes it can feel really mean to the person that is receiving the boundary, it's actually the most loving thing to do. Yes. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up because so often we think like we have to nag somebody. And I think you guys have all talked in different ways about this, not just about getting in therapy, but you can actually motivate people to do things without saying, get in here and do this right now. I'm sick and tired of you being in bed all day. You can say, hey, I'm, I've am i got a bunch of stuff that I'm trying to take care of. Would you mind going to the store and just picking up this right now? It would really help me out or something. That way you're getting them out of the house. They're doing something. They think they're helping you, which is much better to hear than I am. There's a problem with me and I have to do something about it. And then you're getting the help that you need. So just find those little ways where that person can contribute to, you know, the family or the household without starting with the nagging. You can use that later when those things don't work. But start with the, you know, just gentle sort of like, hey, I could really use some help with this. Would you mind emptying the dishwasher or, you know isn't the bathroom looking kind of messy? Like, would you mind, you know, just putting the <laughs> towels luck, in the... Good luck, Amanda. <laughs> I don't know. That, that sounds like it's a little... <laughs> or <much>. you... <laughs> no towels in the laundry. Okay, that one. <laughs> well, we have several other questions, but I think we've spent quite a bit of, of time going over these very important ones. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to get to more questions in the future. And so we'll go ahead and wrap it up for today. But I really want to remind our listeners that... If you have questions, please submit them, and we will definitely have more Q&A episodes in the future, and we want you to, of course, stay tuned and listen to the answers of those questions, and uh, 
I just really want to say thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to all my fellow brain people here. <laughs> and as always, if there's only one thing you take away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Daniel Binus. I'm Amanda. And I'm Jonathan. And I'm Dr. Katie Elson. And you've been listening to The Brain People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 